Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening, sir. Welcome to uh, book, well, the Football Book Corner podcast to give it its full title. Mr. Paul Whittle, author of the month. But before you talk about your wonderful book, Before the Premier League, A History of Football League's Last Decades, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into writing football books. Uh, well, thank you for having me on, first of all. It's a pleasure to be on. Um, and yeah, well, it's, um, it's from a lifelong love of football. Um, playing and watching as a kid and, and just really being obsessed with everything about the game. Um, for me, that was from the very late 70s, early 80s. Um, and just con- that, that continued. I continued playing, uh, watching, um, watching various teams at first. And then my dad started taking me to Oldham Athletic in the early 80s. So that, that, that was my team. Um, got a few good years and yeah. it's not been great since um, and maybe about 10 years ago um, I, was, I wasn't playing football anymore uh, legs had gone and I was reading quite a bit of football history which I'd always been interested in um, and I, so I had this idea for, for a book from you know the, the period really that I'd grown up with initially and just had sort of different ideas trying to get it um, into a good format and you know this was what ended up as before the Premier League and then I started doing a blog as well which I've really enjoyed that's at the 1888 letter uh, just looking at different games and tournaments and, and different bits of football history mainly English football football league but some international as well um, gone on Facebook and Twitter um, just posting old you know football anniversaries uh, birthdays things like that uh, old matches and yeah I've, I've really enjoyed doing the book and got that out last year and you know um, some people seem to enjoy it when they read it which is the main thing for me I, I didn't really have any um, you know idea that it was going to be a bestseller or anything like that I'm just glad to have done it and you know hope people who do read it enjoy it I do apologise because you have sent it me I haven't read it yet um, but it is almost like a before the Premier League Bible and there's some great interviews as well. What I like about the book flicking through, uh, you go through the decades and uh, there's some lovely interviews at the back and there's a lot of facts. Like, for instance, uh, Division 1 leading goal scorers, Tony Brown from 70-71, Francis Lee 71-72. I love things like that. I think that when you're writing books, then factual information's about the players that that achieved notoriety. It's great to write about them, but it's great to have them facts who scored the goals and who was the first of this and that and the other. And, and, and you go back in time and up to date and there's some fabulous photographs uh, in there as well where did i love that one sealand road chester early 1990s i mean like 
I mean, what a dump that was, wasn't it? You got all like, looks like Budley had grown out of the stands and they, they clearly wasn't playing football back then. They'd moved on. But, you know, for the newbie football fan, all they see is these lovely, modern, all-seater stadium. But us older guys know that football wasn't like that back in the day. Yeah, that's right. I mean, with, with everything, it's the a balance as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I wanted I wanted some stats to be in there. In fact, at first, I had quite a few more. You're just breaking up a little bit, Paul. Yeah. Um, at first, I had more stats, but I've just sort of um, I took a few out and just sort of got it to a, what I thought was a nice level, just to balance the the rest of the book out. I really enjoyed doing the interviews. I got a good span of players right through from the early 60s up to the um, Premier League era, players that had played all through, played players that played in different divisions and they're, you know, basically giving them the chance to um, relate their experiences in the game. And yeah, the, the pictures as well, I contacted a few people because I just wanted a few to, you know, capture some of that atmosphere and as you say, the old terraces and a lot of the grounds that have either gone completely or have been changed um, you know, beyond recognition. You know, those are just some of the changes that, that, that we've seen in that time. I love the the longest sequence of consecutive scoring, 15 in 12 games, Bill Prendergast for Chester, 38-39 season, longest unbeaten sequence, Nottingham Forest, 42 uh, games, hat-tricks there, Dixie Dean, 37, Tranmere, Everton, Notts County in England, and Division 1 in one season, post-war, Jimmy Greaves, 6, Chelsea, 1960-61. No wonder Tony Curry was in tears when Jimmy Greaves left. I mean, Jimmy was just a one-off and the greatest player that we've ever seen. Youngest football league players, oldest football league players you you cover everything before the premier league and i think it's fantastic to have that all down in a book that people can purchase that can read and uh, can remember because those days should never be forgotten i know that the modern game would like to eradicate all records and pretend that football did start in 1992 but as you've alluded to in your book it was 1888 was the first football league and we should never ever forget that no absolutely i've I've tried to do that justice you know it's it's a long history um i didn't feel i was quite able to cover the the whole history from 1888 I've, I've more or less yeah. taken it i've gone into it post-war yes. and then really from from about 58 i really concentrate on it when it became the four national divisions so for me it's sort of going from there um the abolition of the the minimum wage being a really massive thing that you know basically led to where we are now and then just going through 60s 70s 80s as you say and looking at the the major developments the things that changed in television and the obviously the way that money changed the game and you know different experiences of uh watching the game the stadiums have changed so so much has changed and yeah it's, it's definitely trying to do that justice and you know we, we get frustrated when you know people talk about records since 1992 when yeah. there's you know there's over 100 years before that that you know as you say should never be ignored and you know I'm, I'm just trying to bring some of that that back particularly that period that I remember growing up that I think is often 
you know, the 80s are just seen as a, as a grim time of hooliganism, low crowds, English clubs out of Europe. But, you know, I think there was a lot more going on there. There was a lot more competition in the league and it wasn't, it was getting that way, but it wasn't totally dominated by money. And, you know, I'm just trying to, as I say, do justice to that, that period of, of English football. Absolutely. A lovely picture of you on the back, born in Leeds at the start of the 73-74 season. Paul spent much time playing and watching football ever since. And he writes about the games, history, all the W's, the 1888letter.com. This is his first book. When's your second? And who's the pictures? Why the pictures on the front? And I, I says to Andy, I love the iconic brown football with the laces in it. Yeah, I, I wanted to get that. Um, and yeah, the... <laughs> The picture of me there's a there's a few of me to to choose from for football so um i just, just thought i'd get to get something in there that's that's probably late 70s as well um and the, yeah the ones on the front um the one of Ro- there's one of roca park which yeah. you know fantastic old ground um and that was taken by um a chap that i know john dewhurst who's also an author writes a lot about bradford football history mm-hmm. um and this is from his own collection he took quite a few uh during the 80s so that's um fantastic stand and ground that's now that's now gone and the second one was um kindly provided to me by james court and that was actually taken by his dad and that's at molyneux uh, but a very different looking Molyneux. Isn't it just? Uh, very early 90s from the away terrace, big old terrace, uh, looking out over the rest of the ground, which um, isn't in the best condition, to, to be fair mm. to it. But, you know, there, there were two great pictures that people kindly provided to me that, you know, they'd taken themselves over family photographs, which, you know, are from that that era. And... I think the Molyneux is a great example of the modern game, how it's changed. Because, as you said, they moved out, Sullivan moved out, Roker Park went to Stadium Alight. You know, many teams have, have moved out of grounds and gone to uh, pretty similar stadiums out of town. But the Wolves have stayed there at Molyneux and that picture is a fantastic example of how bad Wolves were then at that time and how far that one stand was away from the football pitch. I mean, I know the West Ham fans ain't very happy at London uh, Stadium, although at the moment they're quite happy because they're winning. But you did need binoculars to sit in that uh, stand on the side of the Molyneux back in those days, didn't you? Yeah, it's very, very bizarre, isn't it? They they ran into some uh, financial problems. Yeah. I think they wanted to move the whole ground in that direction and ran out of money. Mm. So, yeah, it does look very, very strange. Um, you know, quite a lot of teams, Chelsea at that time as well, also had big problems and also had one, you know, brand new stand, but the rest of the ground was, was not looking so great. Yeah, I think it's a real shame when... Um, when teams move and lose all that history, yeah. you know, some, sometimes you understand it, but as you say, a lot of the stadiums just, just look the same. They, they don't have the same feel to them. They don't have the history. Um, and often they don't have the, the same atmosphere. I think, I think those are all things that can be lost. Absolutely. And, and I think as well, what shouldn't be lost is lots of the football clubs, they had to sell their better players to finance stadium, 
developments, whether it be a stand or the, or the entire ground. And I think that when you look at Ipswich Town, a great example, you look at where they are today, that they sold so many players to finance Portman Road. Okay, yeah, they stayed there, but at what cost? And I know for a fact that Chelsea, to finance the East Stand in the 70s, they sold uh, Alan Hudson and Peter Osgood. And it was an ongoing thing where clubs didn't have the greatest of, shall we say, business acumen, because when Alan Hudson was sold from Stoke City to Arsenal, that was as a direct result of the uh, Butler's Lane uh, stand falling down in the high winds in January 76, and Alan had to be sold because that stand wasn't insured. Wouldn't happen today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that was a real shame, actually, for Stoke, who had a mm-hmm. great team at the time. I think Peter Shilton and Jimmy Greenhoff were also sold as a direct result as well. Yeah, yeah, it was, it, it, you know, in some ways that's, you know, that's a nice thing that clubs weren't quite so corporate and so, so business orientated. But yeah, I think they could be a little bit naive as well with that. And And again, it's a balance, you know, obviously they want to, um, be able to make money and, and compete but I think sometimes modern football's you know obsessed with that um, more than anything uh, and it you know, to me it takes a little bit away from the game that you know the richest clubs are always at the top and always winning and you know you mentioned Ipswich Town you know they were you know one of the best teams in the country unlucky not to win the league challenging for trophies you know without a big budget you know just Good management under Bobby Robson, you know, put put together a good set of players, and you'd get that so much more, wouldn't you? With you know, yeah. in the in the seventies, especially Derby and Nottingham Forest winning league titles. You know, it's it's hard to imagine uh, that happening now. You, you need a billionaire or you know, mega billionaire to uh, to compete. Yeah, it's almost uh, an unrecognisable game. I love on page 56, progress of the British transfer record 61 to 92, June 61, Jerry Chins Villa to Inter Milan, £85,000. I mean, it's, it's just it's just laughable, isn't it? When you look at the prices now of uh, while this window is open and you can buy any... I don't really want to seem disrespectful, but in the Premier League, any average Joe for about twenty-five million, and like in those days, you got an absolute world-class superstar for eighty-five grand. It's it's just bizarre. And and sixty-one, of course, wasn't um, wasn't that long ago. No, no, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. I mean the the wages um, as well as the transfer fees have just just exploded, as as we know. You know, it's just unimaginable from. You know, a time when even even the best players, you know, they weren't getting paid that much more than than people in other professions, yeah. people in good jobs. And I think the fans related more to the players then, and now they're just totally removed. They're obviously celebrities, they're they're superstars, and you know, you can't blame the players so much because yeah. you know who's who's going to turn that down? You know, that's just the way it's gone. But I think it has. Um, removed some of that connection that that fans had to players, and obviously there was a time when, you know, they they really weren't paid enough. You know, when, yeah. yeah, when the club when the clubs had the um, the maximum wage, 
you know they were able to basically keep players on a, on a pittance so again it's you know it's that thing of balance that it it changed but then you know it just went further and further away from i think what was intended to keep a balance of the league and you know prevent a certain number of clubs just being that much bigger and richer than everyone else that they were going to dominate the league and you know i think we see now that, that that's what happens you know um when when the money's totally uncontrolled and um you see smaller clubs you know falling by the wayside macclesfield and berry in recent years you know oldham have been on the brink of that basically mm-hmm. the you know, a premier league players couple of weeks wages you know that's it's um you know you can't have feeling that that's that's gone too far really absolutely and Oldham being now of course non-league and uh, the first club to hit well I wouldn't say hit that status it's you know it's um it's been a race to the bottom hasn't it really sadly for Oldham Athletic but the first team that played in the Premier League to play now non-league football it just is incredible how that team, I mean, that wonderful side under Joe Royal and done so very, very well, is uh, is now as a non-league football team, well, club. Um, how long did it, this labour of love take you? Um, it, it took quite a um, to, to get it um, really in, in a format that I was happy with. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, my main inspiration for it. Um, um, by R.C. Churchill, which was called 60 Seasons of League Football, which actually went up to 1980. You're just breaking up again. You're just breaking up. You're going a bit Dalek-y like Terry Curran used to in the old days of the current view. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just um, go back to uh, that. So my main inspiration for the book was um, a book that I found by someone called R.C. Churchill, which yeah. was 60 Seasons of League Football, which took it right from the start, 1888 up to 1958, and it sort of looked at the periods of the league in chunks divided by the world wars. But it had a There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What statistics for each club? And initially I had in mind something like that and I had more statistics, as I say, but, you know, a lot of it's on the internet. A lot of it may be, you know, people can find in other places. Um, so I, I left them in, I left in a, a sort of section, as, as you've mentioned, uh, which I think is important as well, but maybe a bit less emphasis on that and more on the interviews, which I wasn't expecting when I started the book. Um, a friend of mine, so we had, we had a chat about the book generally and he was saying, well, 
you know, if you could get a couple of interviews, that'd be great. But, you know, I didn't really know how to go about it initially. Um, but my friend who actually works for the FA put me in touch initially with Paul Davis, yeah. uh, which is a fantastic way to start, you know, league title winner, well, won virtually everything um, in the English game. Um, and also Nigel Gleghorn, who, you know, had a great experience at different clubs, you know, 500-odd games, uh, and he'd started as a fireman, uh, which I enjoyed. <laughs> Uh, hearing about you know, went basically straight from the fire service to the first division, which you know is 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 unheard of these days. And they were great interviewees, and and from there I was able to get in touch with a couple more people, a couple more people after that. So I got this nice balance, um, you know, half a dozen players who played at different levels of the football league and all that, you know, great experiences. Played played at different clubs some of them had played in the North American League which is quite interesting to hear about as well so that that part of it came maybe in the last couple of years uh, Paul Davis I think I interviewed just before uh, the first lockdown I actually went to St George's Park to meet him um, which was also quite an experience um, and then after that I was able to, to put it together reasonably quickly and, and get it out last last year. So, I mean, it's um, it's hopefully something that will stand the test of time as well. It's not sort of limited to, to, to 2021 or 2022. It's meant to be a, a history that's there to, you know, to either remind those of us who were there and, and maybe introduce people who weren't around um, to, you know, a little slice of how, how English football was before then. Steve, I'm not I'm not familiar with this fella. Steve Hetz Hetzy. Steve Hetzky, yeah, yeah, he'd had um, a, a long career. Um, never played in the, at the top level, but he'd um, spent quite a long time with Reading. Yeah. Moved on to Blackpool, and then he played for Sunderland under Laurie McMenemy, which wasn't wasn't their best period, unfortunately. Um, and he. He finished at Chester and then Colchester, and it's just interesting to hear from a player who you know didn't make the very top level, didn't didn't make millions of pounds out of it, but he had a long career. You know, he, he started very young. I think he was Reading's youngest ever player when he made his debut, and sort of talking about football in the seventies, you know, how physical it was, you know, some of the changes, and he's still involved also um, coaching and scouting and and got involvement in the game, so he's got sort of perspective on on some of those changes that we've been talking about and it's just interesting to me you know he's talking about different managers uh, Jock Wallace was his manager at the end of his career obviously Laurie McMenemy um, earlier than that Maurice Evans at, at Reading different characters that you know I've obviously heard and read about but you know to hear a bit more about their their styles and how players respond to different managers you know it's, it's really interesting to me as a fan Absolutely, and he played for Vancouver Whitecaps in the NASL in 1976. But I love the uh, the reference to uh, Billy Whitehurst and another player <laughs> you're at Reading, Robin Friday. I mean, two legends of the football league. Billy Whitehurst, without any fear of doubt, the hardest man that's ever played football, and Robin Friday, one of the greatest Mavericks. Lots of people would have heard of the name but don't know who Robin Friday was. But, I mean, if you could put a player's um, 
career and life on the silver screen, Robin Friday would be up there with the best of them, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's got. A, there's a couple of books uh, on him alone as well, aren't they? You know, he's yeah, one of those is. characters that you just don't don't see in modern football, and you know that's that's something I, I mentioned in the in the book. And obviously, you're uh, talking regularly to Alan Hudson and Terry Curran, who are those sort of players that you know you really don't don't tend to come across. You know, so many of them, Stan Bowles, uh, Tony Curry, you know, and they you know players who. You know, and Robin Friday is interesting because he never, again, got right to the top level. But he's, you know, like you say, he's a he's sort of a legendary figure, isn't he? Cult figure in yeah. the, in the game. You know, absolute maverick who maybe didn't, you know, make the most of his talent, but very well remembered. But it just goes to show, doesn't it, that there's been so many players that have played football through the years, and you don't have to actually hit the highest height to be remembered and, and Robin you're right there's a fantastic book uh, two parts uh, by Stuart Kane who I've had the pleasure to do uh, a podcast with who uh, wrote about and tells the story of Robin Friday and some of those stories of Robin really are absolutely legendary yeah yeah definitely things that you wouldn't uh, get away with nowadays no, no, absolutely, in, in football. No. Imagine <laughs> that. On a, can you imagine, those, on a serious note, lots of the things that our Mavericks and players did back in those days, you look at the wokeness of football today, it, they just, there are, and I think as a consequence, we haven't got the charismatic players and the characters because it's been knocked out of them. Probably one of the few that we have got, thankfully, is Jack Grealish, who is a throwback to the olden days. Thank God we still need people like that to look up to, watch playing football, admire them and thinking, go on, son, you're one of us. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's what people want to see generally yeah. when they're watching football as well, someone who's going to do something a little bit different. Mm. And I think, you know, there, there are, you know, it'd be it'd be crazy to say there haven't been improvements. You know, yeah. the, the players are fantastic technically. They're obviously super fit. But if there was a criticism, it's that the game can be a bit stereotyped, that, yeah. you know, people play the same way, that they're obviously so well coached, everything's so well drilled. There doesn't seem to be as much room for that sort of spontaneity, those those skills, those players doing things off the cuff that you used to see um, a, a lot more. I used to love watching Glenn Hoddle when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, fantastic passer of the ball, both feet, you know, ahead of his time really, um, playing on terrible pitches, getting kicked about, and you know, just had that that extra level of skill that you know even not necessarily a fan of that team as a player you'd think you know just just amazing to watch and there were a lot you know there were a few of those around in you know um john barnes chris waddle obviously gaza a little bit later on mm. you know there were those sort of players still still around and there just seemed to be less of them and another lovely thing that we used to have in in those days that we don't have today players staying at a football club for almost their entire career. Steve Ball was probably the last one, and Matthew Letizia also with Southampton, uh, bringing it up today. But, you know, we had 
players like Derek Parkin, who holds the most appearances at Wolverhampton Wanderers. Kenny Ibbick second. We've got Stevie Perryman at Tottenham Hotspur, Terry Payne at Southampton. These players done like over 700 games and playing at a good level of football as well. So it, 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 it's something that you just wouldn't get today. And I think it's another thing that, you know, the fans identified with uh, a lot more as well. And especially in the lower divisions now, you get such a turnover yeah. of players uh, on short-term contracts. Yeah. That it's a different team almost every year. Mm. You know, the longest serving player will have been there, you know, two, three years. Um, and, and it, you know, you, you don't feel the same connection again. You don't feel the same same bond as when you had those those long-serving career players um, you know, Paul Davis spent, you know, the best part of two decades with Arsenal. David O'Leary uh, alongside him, you know, uh, Steve Perryman, people that you've mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, just seem to be a lot, um, a lot more widespread. Players staying basically for their career at the at the same club, and you know, I don't, I don't know how much agents or you know the way contracts are negotiated have to do with it now, but it's it's another thing that you know seems to have lost a little bit of connection between fans and the and the clubs, the fact that the players move so often. Absolutely. In my club, we had a player, Jude Bellingham. I think he played about 20 games for Birmingham City and re- we retired his shirt. <laughs> Again, mm. something that you look at, you just, yeah. you just would never have had that back in the old days. It is just a bonkers game. And managers, you look at the, you know, the sack race that, that you'll see on Sky TV. I mean, basically, in our day, the sack race was you'd turn up as a parent and you'd, you'd enter the sack race with your kids. And that's their way of like looking at mum or dad and having a right laugh. But the seriousness of it now is if you don't kick off a season and shortly the, the teams will be kicking off a season, you lose your first five or six games in the Premier League, you, you're toast. Yeah, yeah, it's it's that short term thing, and the you know the rewards are so great, yeah. but also you know the danger if you get relegated that you know you're going to lose so much money, you're going to be stuck with players on the huge wages. Everyone's you know scared of that, so they, you know like you say, it's half a dozen games. I mean, is it Watford who seem to get through you know four oh. or five managers a season? <laughs> you know, it's it's just crazy. It's, it just is bonkers, isn't it? For us older guys, it is absolutely crazy. You know, in the olden days, you'd say that manager's been with us for four seasons. I mean, now they are with you for four seasons. But, you know, it's like August, spring, winter and uh, and summer. Those are the four seasons that you're with them. It's just absolutely crazy. How do you get any continuity? How do you get any stability in your football club when you keep sacking the managers? Sir Alex Ferguson, a prime example, starting off at Manchester United, you could say not on a good footing, but they backed him and look at the success that Sir Alex brought to Manchester United. Alex Ferguson wouldn't have been Sir Alex these days. He'd have probably lasted a few games that have sacked him. Yeah, definitely. Uh, by, by the late 80s, he'd, he'd have been gone, wouldn't he? Yeah, had a definitely. Couple of seasons where they, they were nowhere in the league, didn't win anything. Shankly done the yeah, same as well when gone. he started at yeah. Liverpool. Never won nothing at first, but built great sides at Liverpool Football Club. And them two of the greatest, two of the greatest football clubs in world football possibly might not have happened had it not been for the, the brilliance of, of the management and the intelligence of the people that run the football clubs. 
they, they tended to leave the manager to it to yeah, a, they did. A, yeah, much much more of an extent. I mean, a lot of the teams that are obviously mentioned in the book that are you know the, the great teams of you know certainly post-war English football that you, you just associate them with the manager, don't you? Matt Busby at yeah. Manchester United, yeah. Shankly at Liverpool, Revy at Leeds, Clough, well both Derby and Forest. You know the great managers. I mean, Clough must be the last one to have you know, lasted that long at a single club. Mm. You know, I hardly remembered a time when Clough wasn't the manager yeah. of Nottingham Forest, you know, right up to the uh, Premier League era. And that just, it, it, you know, it doesn't seem to happen. No, absolutely. So it's obviously been the, the exception. What does happen is the uh, the owners of football clubs like to get the football boots on and turn up at the training ground. I remember Ron telling me about Doug Ellis. <laughs> what the hell's going on here? Like he stuck him in the wall. He said to Sid, Sid, just fizz one past his right ear hole and he soon buggered <laughs> off in. <laughs> well, again, you didn't have that. They they owned or run the club and let the manager manage the football club and the players play. Everybody had the roles. These days, the owners seem to want to do absolutely everything. The the owners seem to be the, the sort of personalities in their own right. Yeah. And obviously there's a few chairmen, you know, Ken Bates was, was notorious, Doug Ellis, as you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. But they were the exception, really. I mean, yeah. for a long time, the chairman... They were just the people who, who ran the club, effectively. Yeah. They weren't we looking for publicity. We didn't know them, did we? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. We didn't know them. Uh, they, they were there to, to run the club as best they could, but leave the management to the manager. And now it seems a lot of them want the limelight. Absolutely. Know, referees. They're, they're re- referees, yeah. another one as well, Paul. You know, we didn't know who the referees were back in the day. We watched them. They had a black uniform on. They had a whistle and they refereed it. Now they want to be stars. It's the only stars in football are the football players. When's your when's your next book? And I well, are you working on a next book? Um, I have to say, at the moment, I'm not working on 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 the next book. Um, it's something I maybe like to do in the future. Yeah. I'd have to have a, a you know. A really strong idea to you know put put the time in the the research it takes you know i really enjoyed this one mm. um because it's you know it's a labor of love it's the, yes. the era i grew up with um you know it'd either be another angle on that or you know something else that really really um you know had my my total commitment and interest at the moment i'm enjoying doing the blog uh, just researching different bits and pieces of of football history um i've just done one about the 1982 world cup which is the first world cup i remember as well yeah. uh, i think you know had some great great games great memories from that um i just like you know picking up different bits and pieces of, uh, of football history wherever i can and doing a bit of research and doing a little little feature on the blog is a good uh, way to keep that ticking over but i'm certainly not ruling out writing another one in the future Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. And uh, finally, give another shout out to your website, to your social medias and where people can go and buy your wonderful book before the Premier League, a history of the football leagues last decade. And guys, it is a beautiful little book. It's got everything in there. It's got interviews. There's uh, lots of stories. There's lots of factual information. It's a book that you should be very, very proud of. And if I ever do a book, 
well I won't because I'm not intelligent enough but it would be something similar to your book in in the way that you've written it factual information stories and interviews as well so well done and thank you very much Paul Whittle well thank you thank you very much for your kind words and yeah you can buy the book and also find a little bit more information about it on my blog which is called the 1888 letter so it's at 188 the 1888letter.com forward slash book but the 1888letter.com's got different features anyway that's that's my blog um mainly about same era pre-premier league english football i'm on twitter at 1888letter and i'm on facebook and instagram at before the premier league well done mate superb be very very proud of what you've done thank you so much for your time and uh, it's back to andy now thank you cheers pal appreciate it that's great Ta, mate speak soon yeah cheers paul. lovely thanks paul thanks keep in touch mate thank all, you all the best bye-bye now bye. even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.